Five years ago, I, in December, I ruptured my Achilles tendon in my left heel, and it was the worst possible of times. Our huge Christmas outreach was just around the corner. Uh, we'd been planning it for months. Uh, we had a couple thousand people coming to the church I was at, and we were looking forward to sharing the gospel with all those people. I was looking forward to sharing the gospel with all those people, but God had other plans. <laughs> he put me on the sidelines. He forced me to sit there helpless, unable to do anything except keep my foot elevated. And I was out of commission for over a month as I recovered from surgery. And then it was a total of over nine months before I was back to full speed, okay? It's crazy. It was a season where God set me aside. 2,000 years ago, God set another man aside. Uh, when the angel Gabriel came and announced to Zechariah, the priest, that the good news that his prayers had been answered, that he and his wife Elizabeth would finally conceive after a lifetime of never being able to have a child, they would finally have a baby boy in their old age, he doubted the promises of God. And God, in, in reply to that, said, I, I'm going to make you quiet. I'm going to make it unable for you to speak until these promises come to pass. And for nine to 10 months or so, Zechariah is set aside. And the question is, what do you do when God sets you aside? What do you do? What do you do when God pulls you out of the game and says, you just spend some time on the bench for now? When he calls you into a season of stillness or quietness or reflection? And there's lots of circumstances God can use to do this. Uh, career interruptions, uh, health challenges, um, a breakup in a relationship, job searches, family crises, seasons of waiting. If you think about it, God does this a lot. <laughs> Moses, remember, he, he knew he was called by God to redeem his people, and then he spent years and years, decades in the wilderness. Uh, David is anointed to be the king, and then he spends all these years running away from King Saul in the hiding in caves. Even Jesus, the Son of God, come to save the world, spends most of his life as a carpenter. It's a season of waiting. He's not doing what he's called to do. He's on the sidelines, as it were. So what do you do when God sets you aside for a season? When you can't do normal, what do, you, what do you do when you have to learn to wait on Him? I think we're all going to face this at some point or another. And in today's passage, Zechariah is going to show us his season of being set aside is coming to an end, and he's finally going to speak again. And as he speaks, we're going to realize that he's been, as he gets back in the game, he's been using this time on the sidelines productively. He's been making good use of his time on the bench. And so let's see if we can learn from Zechariah what to do when God sets us aside, okay? That's our plan. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 down to 80, 
And today's reading is on pages 856 to 57 in your Pew Bible, if you want to grab that and join us, 856 to 857. Again, Luke chapter 1, 57 down to 80. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but the, his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he, and he spoke, and he blessed God, and Fear came on all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about all through the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by his mouth of the holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Thanks be to the Lord for the reading of his word. So what do you do when God sets you aside? That's the question. When he puts you on the bench, when he makes you sit down and be still, Zechariah, would you show us the way by your example? So Zechariah is going to show us what to do. Three things. Ready? Check your heart. Engage the word and look unto Jesus, okay? Check your heart, engage the word, look unto Jesus. There's your outline, let's pray and we'll jump in. Father, we pray today that you would help us to learn what to do when you set us aside. Help us, we pray, for Jesus' sake, amen, amen. So number one, check your heart, check your heart. Remember how all of this started. The angel Gabriel came to Zechariah when he was lighting the incense in the temple. Luke 1.13, do not be afraid, the angel said, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. All his life, Zechariah and Elizabeth have been praying for this child and after years of unanswered prayer, unfulfilled dreams, Zechariah has pretty much given up hope of this ever happening, and so he can't bring himself to believe that it's real. 
And so he answers with skepticism. Verse 18, Luke 1, 18. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. You know, for a priest who's devout and righteous, this is not his finest hour, right? It's not his finest hour. And the angel comes out strong. Luke 1, 19 to 20. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent here to bring you this good news. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And there it is. So God says, basically, Zechariah, just, I'm going to set you aside. Sit down. Be quiet until the day these things take place. All these things take place. Now, I don't know how Zechariah interpreted that phrase, until the day that all these things take place. But if it were me, I would assume this I'd first assume, as soon as we get pregnant, I'll be able to talk again, okay? Which is not what happens. He goes the whole pregnancy, he's not able to speak. And then I would assume, well, it'll happen as soon as the baby's born, right? As soon as little John joins us, I'll be able to speak. But that's not what happens. He's still unable to speak. It's not until the eighth day when they go to circumcise him and officially, uh, ceremonially name him as John, that Zechariah's tongue is actually loosed. That had to be a long week, right, for Zechariah. He's like, is this ever going to end? Is it ever going to end? But remember, the angel said to Zechariah, you shall call his name John. That's part of the prophecy. It's part of the promise. And so until all these things take place and you actually call his name John, you're under You've been set aside. You'll be silent and unable to speak, you see. And of course, Elizabeth is the first to say his name is John. John, it's a name that means God is gracious, which is the perfect name for this little guy. But it's not a family name, and it's not a typical name of a priestly uh, family. And so they looked to Zechariah for confirmation, verse 62 here. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. <laughs> now, I think this is so funny, okay? This is, they're making signs to Zechariah, right? He's not deaf. He can't speak, so he's making signs to them. But, but they're like, what do you want your baby to be called, right? And it's like when Americans travel abroad and we can't speak the language, so we speak louder, right? Do you have chicken? No, I mean, you know, that doesn't help. It doesn't help, right? It's so human. It's so comical. I love that this little nugget is in here. So finally, he asks for a writing tablet, and he writes, his name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately, his mouth is open, his tongue is loosed, and he speaks. Blessing of God. Now, we're going to look at his blessing. That's this big poem. We're going to look at that in just a minute. But at first, I want you to notice the significance of these words. His name is John. It's so emphatic, isn't it? It's bold. It's decisive. For Zechariah, friends, these four words are full, chock full of obedience and faith full of obedience and faith. He may not have been ready to take God at his word a few months ago, but now his heart is full of trust. 
He may have been hesitant to go all in with God before, but now he's ready to follow orders. He's committed. He's full of trust and obedience. His name is John. You see, in those nine to ten months, God got his attention, didn't he? God got his attention. And friends, God sets us aside to get our attention. God sets us aside to get our attention. It's one of the things he's doing in these seasons when he sets us aside. In these months when Zechariah was on the bench, he was doing serious heart work. He was reflecting on his failure. He was on his lack of faith. Why was my knee-jerk reaction skepticism instead of joyous confidence in the Lord? Why? You see, Zechariah didn't waste those nine to ten months. He used them to check his heart. See, the Lord loves, he loves Zechariah, and the Lord disciplines those he loves. Hebrews 12, verse 6, and Zechariah here has been chastened by the Lord in love, and so he does the heart work. When he writes, his name is John, there are months of repentance and faith behind those words. You see that? Zechariah's back. God's got his full attention. So when God sets you aside, friends, check your heart. Check your heart. Number two, engage the word. Engage the word. <laughs> if you were forced to be speechless for nine to ten months, for the better part of a year, right? But you knew it would come to an end, and you'd be able to speak your first words, you know, out of the gate, you'd give, I think you'd give some thought to what those words would be, wouldn't you? You'd be thinking about that. What are Zechariah's first words? He chooses with his very first words to pour out blessing upon God with this beautifully crafted poem we know as the Benedictus, Benedictus, blessing. And to get this, friends, get this, this is amazing. In this short poem, there's like 12 verses here. There's, over, there's almost 100 allusions to the Old Testament, to the prophecies of the Old Testament in Zechariah's song, almost 100, which tells us something. It tells us what he's been doing with his time. What has he been doing for the last nine to 10 months? He's been pouring himself into the scriptures. He's been meditating on the promises of God. He's been engaging the word. In those silent days, this is the song he's been composing. Now let's walk with Zechariah through this song of silence. And I want to point out, I'll be your tour guide. I'll point out some of the scriptural allusions along the way, okay? So here we go. Verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Just pause there. In the tradition of the psalmist, Zechariah leads out of the gate with blessing of the Lord. Like Psalm 41, verse 13, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Or Psalm 72, verse 18, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Zechariah is, is cluing us into his purposes in this psalm. He's writing a psalm of blessing to the Lord. He says he has visited and redeemed his people. 
This word visited, if you do a study on it, you will find it is most often used in connection with the Exodus, with Moses and the Exodus as, as God sees the affliction of his people under Egyptian oppression. He raises up Moses to be a deliverer and he brings Israel through the Passover out of bondage in Egypt into freedom. So for example, in Genesis 50 verses 24 and 25, Joseph prophesies about the Exodus. He says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear to him saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. I'm going to die, you're going to bury, but move my coffin home. Exodus 3:16. God is speaking to Moses and he says, "Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have visited you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt." And so Moses gathers the elders together, all the people in Exodus 4.31. This is what we read. The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Exodus 13, verse 19. This is a text that's written during the Exodus, or it's about the scene during the Exodus. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So you see all this language. If you study the word redeemed, we don't have time for that right now, but you're going to find similar connections to the Exodus story, the redemption of the people of God who have been brought out of slavery in Egypt. And Zechariah here is deliberately drawing the parallels between what's happening now in the coming of Jesus and in the Exodus of all those years ago. A new Exodus is coming. Just like God raised up Moses, God's raising up a new deliverer. And God has raised up, he says, a horn of salvation for us. That's a weird phrase, a horn of salvation. I didn't know this until this week, but this is not a horn like a trumpet. Doo, 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 doo. This is a horn like an ox horn. An ox horn, a horn of salvation. Just picture a huge, strong bull ox bent over, massive horns, lowered, charging, fierce and ferocious. You don't want to be on the business end of those horns, right? And so the warrior kings of the ancient Near East would take those horns and they would put them on their helmets as a symbol, like a Viking, right? big horns on the helmet as a, as, a, as a sign. I am strong and ferocious. I have power and I have strength. Don't mess with the king, the warrior king. And so the Israel did this too. And horn became code for the warrior king. So 1 Samuel 2 verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. 
Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Or Psalm 75, verse 10, all the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Or Psalm 148, verse 14, he has raised up a horn for his people. Praise the Lord. It's a psalm about the king. So the language of horn is royal. It's warrior king language, and it's even used of God. 2 Samuel 22, verse 3, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. See, God is a warrior king who fights for us and saves his people. That's the picture. Psalm 18, verse 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And then, of course, there's the prophecy of the horn, <laughs> the prophecy of the horn. Psalm 132, verse 17, God says, I will make a horn to sprout for David. I will make a horn sprout, so, sprout for David. So think like a young ox whose horns are just budding out, just breaking through the fur. The imagery here is that out of David's line is going to come a young ox with massive horns that will grow and will come into his power and regal authority. It's a prophecy of the coming king, of an heir to David. It's akin to the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 16. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Ezekiel 29, verse, 20, uh, 29, verse 21 Chapter 29, verse 21, picks this up. On that day, I will cause a horn to spring up for the house of Israel. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So don't you see, Zechariah is synthesizing all these prophecies, and he's uniting them together with this language and this beautiful psalm of blessing to the Lord. A new exodus is coming. A new redeemer is being raised up, just like Moses before. A new one, a new warrior king is arising. A horn of salvation, the heir of David's throne. Salvation is at hand. This is amazing. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Again, this language is intentionally modeled after God's saving acts to Israel, particularly through Moses and David. Moses and David. So Exodus 14, verse 13, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And of course, they go through the Red Sea, and that's exactly what God does. He saves his people. In 2 Samuel 22, verse 18, this is David now. David says, 
he, the Lord, rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. He's talking about Saul, who's trying to kill him. Psalm 106, verse 10. He, God, this is about Israel, God saved them from the hand of their foes and redeemed them from the power of their enemies. And Zechariah says, look, what God has done in the past, he's about to do it again. Jeremiah 30, verse 8 prophesies, and it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off of your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, of Israel. See, Zechariah said, God's about to save us all over again. Verse 72, in order to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him with fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God's moving in concert with his promises and covenants of old. That's what he's saying. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9, know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is a faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands to a thousand generations. 1 Kings 8, verse 23, Solomon is praying, O Lord, the God of Israel, there's no one like you in heaven above or on earth below, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Psalm 105, verses 8 and 9, he remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, his sworn promises to Isaac. Psalm 106, verse 45, for their sake he remembered his covenant according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Micah 7, verse 20, a prophecy, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. You have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And Zechariah says, God has not forgotten. He's not forgotten his promises. He's not forgotten his covenants with his people. He's not forgotten what he promised Abraham. Remember what God promised Abraham? Genesis 12, one to three. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house to the land I'll show you and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you I will curse, and in you, through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And it is now in faithfulness to that covenant that God made with Abraham, it is, it, it is in faithfulness to that that God redeemed Israel from Egypt all those years ago. Deuteronomy 7 verse 8, it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you up with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh the king. So God, he brought them out of, in the Exodus, he redeemed them in faithfulness to Abraham all those years before. And now, Zechariah says he's about to do it again. Jesus is coming, and it means redemption is at hand. Now, 
Exodus, oh, let me give you a couple more. I'm sorry, there's so many of these. In Exodus 2.24, God heard their groaning. He's talking about the Exodus. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He says, I rescued and redeemed you in order that you might serve me in holiness and righteousness. Listen to this language. This is what Zechariah is saying. You've, You've redeemed us that we might serve you. This is language, again, from the Exodus. Exodus 3, verse 12. God said to Moses, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I've sent you. And when you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And sure enough, in Deuteronomy 11, 13, God brought the people out in order that they might love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And Zechariah says, look, what God's been doing all through the years, he's about to do it again. The day of redemption is coming again. Salvation's coming again, and we will serve the Lord in holiness and righteousness all of our days. It's amazing. Verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Now he's talking about his son, John the Baptist. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of our God. So Zechariah is now addressing his son. Remember the angel Gabriel told him that John would come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children, right? Which is a direct quotation or reference to Malachi chapter four, verses five and six. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, which is a reference back to Malachi chapter three, verse one. Behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple. And so Zechariah realizes his son is the forerunner of Messiah, the one to come before. This is prophesied in Isaiah 40 verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And Zechariah realizes if that's true, if the Lord is coming, then the new covenant is coming. What God promised in Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, God promises. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and say to his brother, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, and I will remove their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Zechariah 33, verse 8, and I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin before me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. For Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9 says, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Salvation of the Lord is coming. The new covenant is coming. Verse 78b, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and guide our feet into the way of peace. Now there's something, going on, there's something odd going on with this word visit here in this, in this verse. It normally means sprout, sprout, like an organic term, like a, like a sprouting branch or a sprouting root. He says, the sunrise shall sprout from on high. (laughs) 
It's such a mix of metaphors, isn't it? The sunrise, so you got a sun, you got sun peeking over a horizon, rays of light coming in on, on a dark night, right? Here it comes. And then you got a sprouting plant that's emerging. And you have a celestial object that's like coming down out of the sky and he mashes it all up. I think it's on purpose. It's on purpose. Because again, Zechariah is synthesizing a whole bunch of prophecies from the Old Testament. He's uniting them together here. So the celestial body, like a comet or a shooting star coming down, that's a reference to Numbers 24, 17. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The sprouting plant imagery is alluding to Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's David's dad. From the branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Zechariah 3, verse 8, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. (laughs) This is a name for the coming Messiah. And then he says, in the imagery of the rising dawn, this is all over the Old Testament. Let me just give you a few of these. Malachi 4, verse 2, For those of you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Isaiah 9, verse 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Isaiah 42, 6 to 7, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand, and I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Isaiah 49, verse 6, I will make you a light for the nations. My salvation shall reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 60, verses 2 and 3, for behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness over the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen by you and the nations shall come to your light and kings will be drawn to the brightness of your rising. Isaiah 58, verse 8, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Psalm 118, verse 27, the Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon you. And then we get this language at the end, the covenant of peace that God is making. Isaiah 54, verse 10, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Ezekiel 34, 25 and 27, I will make with them a covenant of peace, and they shall know I am the Lord. Now, listen, now you know what I was doing with my whole week, okay? I know that's a lot of verses. I gave them to you on purpose. I almost didn't do all that. I gave it to you on purpose because I want you to see that Zechariah has been engaging the word. What has he been doing for these nine months? He has been saturating his soul in the scriptures. When he's finally able to speak, what pours out 
a flood of Scripture, the promises of God, what he's been marinating in the Word of God. It's captured his imagination. And friends, God sets us aside to fill our attention. He sets us aside to fill our attention. Sometimes God slows us down to fill our attention with what truly matters. We're so busy doing, 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 running, running, running. And sometimes we don't give God the attention he deserves or the attention that our souls need. And so when God sets you aside, check your heart and engage the word. Engage the word. Thirdly, look unto Jesus. Don't worry, this is fast. <laughs> I find this remarkable. Zechariah's just gotten his voice back. He's had a lifetime of his prayers answered. He's just welcomed his little son into the world. And yet, look at what's captured his heart in this, in this song. Who is this song mostly about? Think about it. It's mostly about Jesus. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has visited and redeemed his people. How is he visiting and redeeming his people? In not John, Jesus. He's raised up a horn of salvation. Who's that? Jesus. Tell me, who is this? The horn of salvation. It's Jesus. In the house of his servant David, he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old that we should be saved by our, from our enemies and from all the hands of those who hate us. Who's going to save us from our enemies? Jesus. To show us the mercy promised to our fathers. In, who is, in whom is this mercy found? Jesus. He's remembering his holy covenant. Who will, who will fulfill the covenant? Jesus, the oath he swore to Abraham. They, they, we, that's yes, there you go. That, uh, that he will fulfill the promises to Abraham, that we might be delivered, that we might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness. Who will fulfill all of this? Jesus. And you, child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High. This is about John. And you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. But then look at verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. Who's that knowledge of? Jesus, because of the tender mercies of our God. In whom are those mercies found? Jesus, whereby the sunrise shall rise, visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our, way, our feet into the way of peace. Who's going to do that? Jesus. So you've got 12 verses here and only one of them is about John. That's amazing. Zechariah, Zechariah just had the best day of his life. All of his lifetime dreams have finally come true. The thing he thought would make him happy and fulfilled and make his life worth having. And he can't hardly even talk about it anymore because something else has captured his heart. This is amazing. John is going to come. He's going to say, he must increase. I must decrease. And don't you see, Zechari it's already happening in Zechariah's heart. Ever since the day that Mary showed up and Elizabeth said, who am I that the, the mother of my Lord would come to me? From that moment, Zechariah's heart shifted. It's amazing. Jesus has become his hope, his life. In nine to ten months, Zechariah's priorities have totally changed. A bigger dream has grabbed his focus, and he's looking unto Jesus now. You see this? 
And friends, God sets us aside to focus our attention. God sets us aside to focus our attention. Sometimes we can lose focus on what really matters in life. We start living for all the wrong stuff. And friends, listen, God loves you enough to set you aside, to refocus your attention on the things that really matter so that you and I might learn to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all this other stuff will get added. Matthew 6, 33. Friends, Zechariah, when he was set aside, this time was not wasted. It was not wasted. It was a proactive space where God did deep work in his soul. And he learned to check his heart, to engage the word, and to look unto Jesus. Hebrews 12, verses 10 and 11 tells us that God disciplines us for our good, that we might share in his holiness and in the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And friends, here's the bottom line. God sets us aside to get us back in the game. God sets us aside to get us back in the game. The reason God puts you on the bench is not because he's done with you. He puts you on the bench to get you ready for the next play. And it's up to you to lean in and get ready. Check your heart, engage the word, and look unto Jesus. You know, looking back, I, that's exactly what God was doing when my Achilles tendon ruptured. He stopped me in my tracks. He sat me down, he made me be still. And in that space, he humbled me. He taught me that I wasn't as essential as I thought I was. He taught me how self-reliant I tend to be. He invited me to examine my own heart. And he showed me the sweetness of his word. And he taught me to rest and to trust and to cling to him. And he drew my heart toward his. It was not easy, but it was good. It was really good. God made Zechariah speechless so that he would learn to listen, to listen to the voice of God. And friends, I'm convinced that God wounded my body to heal my soul because he loves his children. And God disciplines those he loves for our good that we might share in his holiness and his righteousness and peace. Won't you trust him, friends? Won't you trust him? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us enough to welcome us just the way we are. And you love us so much that you won't leave us the way we are. Your arms are wide and welcome in grace when we come running to you. But as a loving father, you won't leave us in our misery. You won't leave us broken and tripping up all over ourselves, stuck in our sin. You discipline us for our good so that we might learn obedience and faith and trust and surrender and humility and weakness so that we might know that you and you alone are our salvation 
and that our prom your promises are trustworthy and true and that we can cling to you no matter what comes our way. So Father, thank you for loving us enough to give us yourself and to teach us what it means to love you back. So Father, we give you ourselves. We hold nothing back. Take us, use us, refine us, remake us. We give you permission to set us aside so that we can get back in the game. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.